I love your stylist. I did, we look, yeah, we are killing it. You, like, you I great. promise we did not organize this. He just, 100%. he wants to be like me. So, man, what an incredible way to start your Sunday morning. That is, it's just awesome. I'm always amazed at the at the worship here. And, and not that it's about them, but man, they really put work into it. So it's so great that we get to get to sing together and, and learn together. Uh, my name is Joe, and I get to lead our high school and young adult ministries at the chapel at our three campuses. And today... I get to give a message on sin, and I know what you're thinking. Finally, yeah, I was just starting to feel good about myself, and uh, now I get to get that knocked down a little bit, you know? You're like, okay, did you draw the short straw? No, I, uh, I'm actually honored to be able to help us walk through um, what sin is, and more importantly, God's response to, to sin as well, too. And so if you are reading from your Bible that you brought, or you're going to use the version app on your phone, we're going to be in Hosea 11 today. We'll also have the text on the screen if you, for you as well if you'd like to read along. And really cool, after the end of the service, we're going to have a special prayer opportunity for you. So if you are going through anything or you just need someone to talk to, me and some of the other staff here, as well as some of our leaders, the worship team, um, some of the choir are going to be here, and we would love to pray with you. But I'll get to tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, we are in a, the second week of our message series called Gentle and Lowly, which is based on the book um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And if you're new with us, we are reading this book together as a church, and I would tell you that we still have extra copies, but the last one was taken last service. So uh, it is available on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. It's available on Audio, Audible. It's also available on Hoopla for free, too. So we want to take away any boundaries you have to reading this book because it's so important with, for you as a church, for us as a church, to read this together so that we can grow deeper together. And I just want to challenge and encourage you to read with us uh, because maybe you took a copy of the book, but you haven't cracked it open yet. Um, maybe you're thinking, you know what, life is crazy right now. I'm super busy. Um, or you might say, you know what, I am, I am not a reader. Um, and I get all of that as well, too. But I think for me, and maybe this is true for you, sometimes I make my excuses reasons, right? Um, I can turn an illegitimate excuse into a legitimate reason of why I don't do something. And I get that some of you aren't readers, and I get um, that maybe you're busy, but here's what I know. I always get my screen time report every Sunday morning. Usually when I'm sitting in church, I just got it. And it was like seven hours and 30 minutes, not a week, a day, right? So like my phone is like a full-time job for me. Now, here's what I, uh, here's what I know is I don't want to stand before God at the end of my life and give excuses for why I didn't try to know him more. And then he pulls up a pie chart of my screen time, right? Because it's very obvious I have time. It's just maybe I don't make time. And so for you, um, it may be that, hey, you're like, I'm so busy, I really don't have the time right now. But I know this, in 200 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with God. Not how many hours you worked or what you did here. And so I don't want you and I don't want me to stand before the creator of the universe, the God who is literally the author of life, keeping me alive right now, keeping you alive right now, and to stand before that God and say, I didn't have time or I didn't make it a point to read this book because our, 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 our vision here at the chapel is to help people to move one step closer to God and each other through Christ. And reading this book together is a massive step in that direction. And I sort of, my friends have this joke that every book I read is the greatest book I've ever read, but literally this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. And not because it's like the most entertaining book, but it fundamentally shaped the way that I saw how Jesus loves me and cares about me and relates to me. So 
man, do yourself a favor and, and read along or catch up, or maybe you've already read the book. Um, so, great. So, uh, the reading plan is in your welcome program, in the worship program that you received on your way in, so you can find out where we are. Um, but we're up to chapter, chapter 9. And uh, today we're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 9, and we are entitling the message, How Does Jesus Meet Us in Our Sinfulness? Now, I realize that word sin is a very loaded word, uh, especially in our culture today. It's not a popular word. You're probably not getting the guys together on a Saturday morning to go golfing and talk about your sin. Right? If you're a student, you're probably not plopping down at the lunch table and be like, hey, everybody, sin. You know, what, what are you guys sinning today? You know, like, what's going on with that? Uh, what is sin? You know, there's this old, old saying, don't, don't drink, smoke, or don't, don't drink, sorry, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around with girls who do. I like that one. Uh, I asked, or guys, I asked teen, so I have a group of, te- of high school students on our student leadership team, and they're the students that design our last Sunday program, and they, they implement it, and they're, I reached out to them, and I said, hey, I sent him a text. I was like, tell me what you, what you would say sin is, and I don't want the Sunday school answer what you think. I want to hear, I want to know what you think sin is. And so from high school students, this is their list, all right? This is important. So they said adultery, greed, lust, cheating, stealing, using the Lord's name in vain, sex outside of marriage, lying, disobeying your parents, amen, right? Number one, all right? Students, uh, underage drinking, overeating, murder, worshiping other idols, following the ways of the world, disrespect, doing something when you know it's wrong, holding grudges, and tax evasion. <laughs> Students are out there just, just evading their taxes. It's bad. They're going to go into prison. And I think that the world standards or culture standards of sin has even changed over time. Now, God's word doesn't change. Um, but I'll give you an example. We were at a Puritan church in Philadelphia on a mission trip like 12 years ago. And it's now a museum. And going up the stairs was this white board on the railing all right, at the bottom. And I couldn't figure out what it was. So I asked the curator of the museum. I was like, what is that? And he said, that's a modesty board. He said it was so the men couldn't see the ankles of the women going up the stairs. And I was like, that thing would have to be waist high today. I'm like, a modesty board, so they couldn't see their ankles? Like, is some, like, Puritan guy just in there? Like, hey, John, do you see the feet joints on Mabel? Like, man, I'm going to marry her. So, but we're going to get to the biblical definition of sin in a minute. And I think the world or people often see sin in really one of three ways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these. The first one is that, hey, I'm a good person, right? For those who fall in this category, you don't think sin is a big deal because humans are, humans are inherently good. You know, we're good, we're moral people. And sure, humans aren't perfect. When you mess up, but you, you, don't, think it's, you don't think it's okay to go as far. It's, it's, offensive, it's offensive to call people sinners, Right? And at the end of the day, God wants you to try to be a good person, and that's what, you know, we're trying to do is be good people. So that's one view. The second one is the opposite. That's, hey, I'm the worst person ever, the shame-filled view. For those who fall into this category, maybe you believe that you are horrible people and that you are so far gone that, like, God doesn't want anything to do to you. You know, it's that saying, like, oh, if I walked into a church, you know, I'd probably burst into flames. Or you believe that your sin will always define you that you don't deserve God's forgiveness and that you're always going to have to carry your, your shame around like some heavy luggage for the rest of your life. The third one, which I find 
Christians fall into, unfortunately, and, and I'm not ex- excluded from this, is, is I'm better than others, the hypocritical view. You know, those who fall in this category are those who know that they're sinners and they know that they need Jesus, but they believe others need Jesus just a little bit more or maybe a lot more, right? And we would never say that out loud because we're Christians. We only think it. Uh, but, but deep down, we, we think that people who live differently from us or vote differently from us, or have different stances on political or social issues, all of those things, um, that we see them as different, right? Because they don't fit our narrative of what Christianity is. And maybe we rank sins. They'd be like, yeah, I may struggle with, you know, greed or eating too much, but at least I'm not, you know, doing what they're doing, right? And then we, if you fall into this, you tend to speak more of God's judgment than God's love. You're known more, you know, these are the Christians who are known more for what they're against than what they're for, right? The problem, though, is that God himself does not adhere to any of these three views. These are not biblical at all. And though we might think that they feel right, and maybe our, our culture makes us think that they're right, Scripture does not leave any room for us to hold these views. Instead, what we need to do today is find out what God's Word says about sin, and most importantly, what God himself has done about sin through Jesus. So the first thing we have to do is get on the same definition of what sin is. And the, 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 both, the Bible, or, sorry, both the Hebrew and Greek word for sin mean missing the mark. That's, that's the definition right there. In Hebrew, it originally referred to archery when someone would shoot a target, and though they might have hit it, they missed the center, all right? They missed the mark. It wasn't perfect. Uh, the great St. Augustine expands on this, saying, to sin or to miss God's central bullseye equates to a word or deed or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. So in other words, anytime we feel or we speak or we act in a way that it goes against God, against his perfect ways, we sin. And often when we think of sin, we think of words and actions that we say that we do that go against God. And yes, they are those things. Our words and our actions are really the only, our only evidence of a deeper problem. I've said this before, that the sins that we commit are the symptoms of a deeper problem, a heart problem our sin nature. So there's our sin nature, which, which comes out in the sins that we commit. To kind of explain this, I'm going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, one of the first stories of sin, Genesis 4, 6. So God is talking to Cain, all right? And he says to Cain, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So even though God warns Cain, Cain ignores God, and what's he do? He murders his brother Abel. He commits the sin of murder. Now, murder is a sinful action, no doubt about that. But what caused Cain to murder was his heart, his desire to do what he wanted to do, his desire to be in control, his desire to call the shots, so ultimately his desire to be God. Yes, sin is murder, or I'm sorry, murder is sin, but Jesus said, said, you have heard, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who even hates another has already committed murder in his heart. Because a murderer has only taken what's in his heart all the way to its physical end. But you and I, when we hate another person, have murder in our hearts and we stand on the same platform, equally as guilty. And you and I, we can try to justify our actions. But here's what what I want you to know, is that 
there are consequences to our sins. Even we try to justify it. You know, Cain killed Abel, but in that, he, his sin caused, caused death. And when we sin, it kills our relationships with others. And ultimately, sin kills our relationship with a holy and perfect God. And like I said, you and I can justify our sins all that we want. Pastor Dave Brown said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, our capacity for self-deception is infinite. You and I are very good at talking ourselves into things we shouldn't do, right? We're very good at justifying them. I've often said, you know you're justifying your actions when you say just, right? Oh, it's just, it's just this. It's just that. It's not that, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just this. And we don't understand the weight of our sin, because of our sin. And that may sound redundant, but in the book of Jeremiah, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. That our heart is so deceptive, we don't even know it's deceptive. Because we're fallen and we're sinful at heart, we don't even realize how bad our sins are. And yet, this should confirm that sin is crouching at the door of our hearts, eager to control us, and with it, our wills and desires. And as a result, as a result it harms our relationships, and it separates us from God. So all of this leads us to something that I'm going to call God's conundrum. And to understand what I mean by this, I want us to turn to our main passage of Scripture today, which is in Hosea 11, uh, and it's going to be chapters, or chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. So if you want to read from your Bible or your, the YouVersion app, or we'll have it on the screen as well too, but let me give you a little bit of a background about Hosea. Hosea is a prophetic book, and meaning God is speaking through Hosea to in, in, address the nation of Israel who were his chosen people that he loved. And while there's good things that God wants to communicate to his people, oftentimes we see God addressing sin and unfaithfulness. So he says this, For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me, and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. So here's God's conundrum. You know, his people are relentlessly unfaithful, and yet, and yet it says his heart is torn within him, and his compassion overflows. This perfect God desires to have this personal, close, ongoing relationship with his chosen people. Then it was Israel. Now it is us as followers of Jesus. But they continue to be unfaithful to him. I mean, think about it like this. Think about someone you love so much. And maybe it's a spouse or a child or, or, or you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance. And you just love them with all of your heart. And they continuously push you away and turn their back and are unfaithful to you. And then multiply that by a billion times and that's God's heart for us. This God desires to have a relationship with him. Look at how his people respond to him. He says, for my people are, de- are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. I think what this looks like today is, you know, you may come here every Sunday. You may have a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. You may have a Jesus fish on your car. You might wear a cross necklace. You might do all of these things, but ultimately, most of the time, you spend your, your life dishonoring God by the way that you live. And I'm not here to judge anyone, but I just want you to have a sober reflection of yourself. God's, God's own people tend to view him like a magic genie, right? We want him to grant our wishes. You know, I, want, I think of like a lot of my prayers for the longest times, if God had made every single one of them come true, I think the only thing that would have improved would have been my life. 
So, so we ask God to do all these things for us, and at the same time, we don't really want God because we, we want God to do everything for us, but then we want to live our own way. Sadly, I relate to this. You know, for so often I viewed God as this wish granter, but not really the Lord or leader of my life. I just wanted God to fix everything, but I didn't really want to do what he was telling me to do. I want him to serve my desires. I think at the end of the day, I want a Burger King God, right? Have it your way. That's what I wanted, you know? I want my prayers like I want my Whopper. I only want, that's what I want my faith like. But because we want it our way and, God's, and, and not God's, which is the definition of sin, you can feel God's pain for this wedge that his people have in their relationship here in verse 8. God says, my heart is torn within me. If you really knew how much God loved you and how much when we turn away from him or we sin pains him, you would understand how he would say his heart is, tor- is torn within him. And here, God could walk away and make a clean break. Humanity turns his back on God, and if God was going to be completely just and fair, he would have wiped his hands clean, and he would have said, you're on your own, and every single one of us would have gotten what we deserved, which is eternal separation from him. And who would blame him? I mean, look at the way we've damaged his creation, the people that he's created, but look how we have turned our backs on the creator himself. But then we read these incredible words, which defines God's heart. He says, my compassion overflows. I love the picture that the author of Gentle and Lowly paints here. He says this, he simply cannot give them up. Nothing can cause him to abandon them. They are his. Church, we are his. He says, what father could bring himself to put up for adoption his beloved son just because his son messed up big time? I think about like this. I told this story a couple Christmases ago. My, our youngest son, Mac, one time he put, a, he put one of our cats in the toilet true story. You're not supposed to do that. Cat was not fond of it at all. Um, And it was like, I was getting ready to go conduct a funeral, and he's putting cats in toilets, and I'm like, so, I've never been so mad at him in my entire life. But even as mad as I was in that moment, I never would have been like, that's it. You're done. You're out of the family. You know, there's no possible way, because him and all my kids, no matter what they do, like, I could never just get rid of them. They're my kids. And in the same way, God loves us so much that even though we've turned our back on him, he still loves us. And so have we messed up big time? You know, if you're willing to be honest with yourself and not try to justify our actions or our thoughts, the answer is yes. But is God's love, kindness, and compassion so much more than our sin and unfaithfulness and shame and our past? The answer isn't just yes. The answer is yes because of Jesus. The sins, church, the sins, the sins of those who belong to God, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a Christian, here's what I think, that sometimes when I sin, it just pushes God away. Like Jesus is over in the corner just shaking his head with his arms crossed, be like, man, i got to forgive you again. You keep screwing up. But that's not what happens when, when we fall as followers of Christ We're not under his wrath. We're under his grace, and that causes his heart to flow out in compassion for us. It'd be like if one of my kids had a disease that was taking their life or an affliction, I wouldn't just be over there and be like, man, how could you just be having this disease right now? Like, how could you do this? No, that would draw my heart even closer to them because I love them so much, and I hate what is causing this, this death in them. 
that I draw closer to them through that, and God is the same way. And it's hard to wrap our minds around that because that's not how our world works. That's not how our hearts work. That's not how our minds work. We think that when we, we cause an offense against God that he pushes away from us. But here's what I'm telling you, church. Don't let your thoughts, don't put your thoughts about who God is on him. Instead, we have to let God set the terms by, by how he loves us. And he loves us so much that when we believe in him, when we trust in Jesus, you put your faith in him, you call yourself a Christ follower. When we sin, when we fall, his heart pours out out to us in that. He is there to help us, not to shame us, not to scold us. So what do we do? What's the solution here? Well, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the amazing undeserved grace of God displayed in Jesus, says this point. He says, God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they are, or they were. You see this? We often think God's law is what we have to follow in order to get God to accept us. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God's law was there to show you just how unacceptable you are. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul uses similar language that we saw in Genesis 4 and Hosea 11, that sin controls, <clears throat> it rules, and, completely, and, and leads us completely away from God. But Paul says, the solution to our sin problem <clears throat> is not to try harder, to be a good person, or to earn your way to God. Rather, the solution is the grace of God displayed in Jesus himself. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion is us trying to earn our way to God. Christianity says you can never earn your way to God, so God comes to us through Jesus. Paul says the solution to our sin problem is to not be a good person. The solution is grace. Because if sin means to miss the mark, then, then the gospel, the grace, says that Jesus hit the bullseye. Grace, according to Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says this, is Jesus doing what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is Jesus living perfectly. Grace is Jesus obeying perfectly. Grace is Jesus dying for sin. Grace is Jesus rising from the grave, defeating sin once and for all, and offering it to you as a free gift, and all you have to do is take that gift out of his hand. That's the gospel. Grace is doing all of that, is Jesus doing all of that, and then giving it to us for free. Grace will always, always, always outpace our sin and shame. So does that mean, because I had a valid question from a student this week, he said this. He said, well, if God is going to forgive me, if Jesus is going to forgive me for everything that I, every sin that I'll ever commit, then why would I ever change? I said, man, that's a really good question. I was trying to think of how to word this, and, and the only analogy I could come up with was like, if I said to my wife, hey, you know, Marlena, if, if I was ever to be unfaithful to you, you know, would you forgive me? And if she said, you know... I think through prayer and the grace of God and counseling or whatever it is, like, I, I sure, you know, I would forgive you and, and we could be reconciled. And then I, if I were to say, well, cool, I'm going to go do that then. And that's not love. That's me using someone else. And so when we use the grace of God to continue to sin, that's not love. And here's what I would say is if you feel that way, there's a disconnect that you truly don't understand what Jesus has done for us. Because when you understand who Jesus is, how much he loves you and what you've done for him, your response should be to love him and to say, I want to live my life for you. The, the words here that, that the Apostle Paul says in verse 12 should, make, should, 
should just make our hearts overflow. He says, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know this, sin leads to death. It kills us on the inside because we were never meant to live for ourselves. It kills relationships as we hurt people through our words and through our actions and through our attitudes. And it kills our relationship with God because it causes us to push him away. And, and, and to be clear, it's not that God pulls away from us, but, but think about it like this. If one of my kids like, does something wrong and they think that I'm going to be mad at them, they'll probably keep their distance, right? And so when I sin and I feel like, like God is mad at me, I'm not going to come rushing to him. All right? It doesn't cause God to pull away from us. It can cause us to pull away from God. When we choose to sin, we forget who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, you forget your identity as a child of God, and you invite misery into your lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. But grace, man, grace leads to life. It gives us life on the inside as we become more and more like Jesus, and it gives life to our relationships as we love people the way God intended us to love people and the way that God loves us. And it gives life as our it gives life to our relationship with God as we are now in Christ for eternity. So the choice, death or life, that's it. Wrath or grace, there is no middle ground. To no one will Jesus be neutral. Christian, we are called to, to mature in deeper, deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. But when we don't, and when we choose to sin, even though we forsake our identity as followers of Jesus, he does not forsake us. And so to wrap this up, I want to go back to our three views of sin. And, and we said that these aren't, aren't based in, in the Bible. They aren't based in God's word, and I want to tell you why. The first one, I'm a good person. I hope that we realize that though we may be good people, and we may have even been told that, we may think that ourselves, and maybe you even say you've hit the target, We've all missed the bullseye. None of us are perfect. But Jesus hits the bullseye for us so that when we aren't good, he was good enough for us. But you have to come to that realization. This quote from Erwin Lutzer says, Grace is not sweet until sin is bitter. And until you're willing to quit justifying your sin and come to the reality of it, you'll never understand just how incredible Jesus' grace is. The next one, I'm the worst person ever the shame-filled view. I hope we realize that, yes, our sin does damage. And you may walk in the consequences of your sin throughout your life, but God's grace is so much bigger than our sin. You simply can't outrun God's forgiveness. That doesn't mean try, though. And your standing is with Christ, which means your identity is in him and not what you've done in your life. You come in here this morning, I don't know what your past is, I don't know what you're carrying, but just know that that does not define you. As a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you are defined by Christ's perfection. And the last one, I'm better than others. I hope we realize that, that Jesus does not judge sin by levels or by numbers, that we're all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And the more we understand this, church, the more our desperate world will stop equating sin with our judgment and instead, they will equate sin with the incredible, undeserving grace of God that they see in our lives. 
I love this quote by John Allen Turner. He says this, it's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. If broken people can't find grace and salvation here, where do we expect them to go? I want to read this quote from Gentleman Lily by Dane Orland. It says this, Christian, do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous in all his brightness and sufficiency. Dane Orland. Let me pray for us. Father, every single, every single one of us comes to you as a broken person. God, in need of your grace. And God, we may think we are good people, and we may, maybe we've even been told that, but none of us are perfect. So God, in your grace, would you show us God, how desperate we are for your grace, how dependent we are for you. And God, maybe we feel like we're the worst person ever, and God, that, that you wouldn't want anything to do with this. And God, as nothing is further from the truth, God, no sin is too big, no shame is too great, no past is too much for you to erase by the work that you did on the cross. And so God, as we go from here, let us walk desiring to be more like you, to live in step with your word, And God, to know that when we fail, that we don't have to run from you, but we can run to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So together this morning, we're going to read the benediction. Then I'll give you a little instruction on the time of prayer. So let's read this together from Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So what I want you to do is I just want to give you a chance to be prayed for. And we've got some staff and some members from the worship team, some leaders from the church. And uh, if you want something, maybe something's on your heart. Um, maybe things are going well, and you just want, want somebody to, to say, hey, this is an incredible thing God has done. Whatever it is, or you have questions even about that grace that Jesus is offering you, all you have to do is remain seated and somebody will come and pray for you. And for the rest of you, um, I would just love for you to, uh, I'd love to politely ask you to, to get up and then quickly exit the worship center and you're welcome to congregate out in the atrium so those who are going to be prayed for can have a, a quiet place. So uh, please enjoy the rest of your Sunday and let's do that now.